Beginning over a decade ago, in an effort to deal with global warming, countries around the world pushed to adopt emission control regulations in order to tackle the environmental effects caused by pollution. This included the rapid adoption of smart meters. For example, in 2009, the Obama administration provided financial incentives to utilities in the United States, and it's estimated that within the first year, over half the homes in the United States had smart meters installed. Similar initiatives were undertaken in Australia, India, and Japan, all with the intent to roll these devices out with a relatively short amount of time. And again, smart meters were positioned squarely as making the environment more friendly by knowing how and when energy is being used by individual customers. To transition to a renewable energy system, we need to be smarter in the way we use our energy, in our communities and in our homes. Smart meters provide the data we need to support a cleaner future, showing how much energy is being used and how much this will cost you. Smart meters open a whole world of new and useful insights, connecting the energy we generate from renewable sources to the way we use energy, making our city cleaner, greener and healthier. We need to install smart meters now to make this happen. But as someone who wrote a book questioning the security of our mass-produced IoT devices, I wonder why did no one bother to test and certify these devices before they were installed? I mean, on the one hand, we're saying it's a national priority, and on the other hand, we're saying security, eh, that's a secondary concern. Part of that was in thinking that these were embedded systems. It would be hard for anyone off the street to come along and flash them with malicious code or otherwise exploit any existing vulnerabilities. They were designed to be left into the field for years and otherwise not maintained. But we all know how security by obscurity works in the end. So I reached out to someone who shared that curiosity in wanting to know what was possible with smart meters already in our homes. And in a moment, we'll hear how he took it upon himself to learn all that he could about smart meters. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Vimosi, and in this episode, I'm going to be discussing the world of reverse engineering hardware and what it's like to hack sensors such as a LiDAR or even a smart meter. It's all about the journey, and it's all about the hacker mindset. Electricity. We probably don't think enough about what it means to have power in our homes, in our businesses, in our lives. And yet, everything we do requires electricity, either AC through the wire or DC in the form of a battery. And when it's gone, well, that's probably when we think about it most. In February 2021, during a harsh winter storm, the state of Texas experienced massive blackouts. Here's ABC's Good Morning America. Part of the Lone Star State hitting record low temperatures not seen in a century. 
and people are cranking up the heat, which is taxing the state's electrical system, leading to cascading power outages and rolling blackouts. This morning, more than 3 million waking up without power. This is tragic. We had had power since 5 a.m. yesterday. The cold and loss of power turning deadly. At least 20 people have died, including an 8-year-old girl and a woman dying from carbon monoxide poisoning after a car was left running in a garage to help create heat. I've spoken before in other episodes about how truly massive blackouts are unlikely within the United States because of how the electrical grid is divided up and how states can borrow power from other states. But in this case, this was Texas, and Texas is special. Here's Chris Siliza from CNN to explain. Now, the primary fall guy, and all sides seem to agree is responsible here, is the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, also known as ERCOT. It's an independent organization that operates the vast majority of Texas's power grid. By the way, it's never great to have reliability in your name if you're um, not reliable. So basically, the state of Texas couldn't generate its own power, nor could they borrow power from other states. That's because of the way Texas established itself as independent from the rest of the country. Saliza again. Now, to understand what's happening right now in Texas and who's really to blame, you have to go all the way back to 1935 when President Franklin Roosevelt signed the Federal Power Act, which governed electricity sharing and sales between states. Basically, what the act did is it allowed the federal government to regulate states who brought power in from outside their state lines as it is bought and sold during times of need. So Texas, never a fan of federal intrusion of any sort, set up its own power grid system split between the northern and southern parts of the state to avoid any federal involvement. Now that eventually led to the formation of ERCOT in 1970 and this strange fact. There are three power grids in the United States. The eastern power grid, the western power grid, and Texas. Yes, you heard that right. Texas has its own power grids because, well, it is Texas. So this is great when it works, but when it doesn't, well, it doesn't. Reality is that Texas is an electricity island, which isn't a problem until the lights go out and you don't have enough power in the state to turn them back on, which is where Texas now finds itself. There's no question that ERCOT itself does bear some blame here too. When your only job, you had the one job, is to manage a power grid and that power grid fails miserably, that's a big problem. So all this detail about power grid in the state of Texas is background for this episode. Important background. Yeah. So, I mean, my name is Hash Salahi. I just go by Hash for the most part because it's the easiest thing to, to remember. You know, a lot of times it's security researcher or, or things like that that's put on it. You know, um, I probably reverse engineer would be the one that I would like. I, I just enjoy that as a, a name for kind of what's, what's being done because it's broader, it's broader than just security and it's, and it's kind of just to discover how something works. And maybe there are security implications that come from, understanding how something works, right? Hash initially didn't start out hacking smart meters. He started out small, started with a sensor in a robot vacuum cleaner. I think it was because it was posted on Hackaday, the the challenge showed up. And so I saw this challenge. And so I, I didn't have anything to do with LiDAR before that. I've always liked robotics, you know, like short circuit and things. Like when I was a kid, I thought I'm gonna be a robotics engineer when I grow up, you know, after seeing that movie. Um, but it got posted on Hackaday and I had seen the Xbox controller one and I felt like that was a little outside of my capability. I've always been more embedded, you know, UART, serial ports, things like that. 
And the Xbox One seemed like a higher level software type hacking. And, and I wasn't quite comfortable with that level of software. So when that came out, I, I didn't think anything of it. When the vacuum one came out, I thought, I think I could do this. Like I could buy it. I had the money to buy it. Um, if you, if you won the challenge, you won $400, which was the cost of the robot. So I thought if I can win the robots free. And, and so money was tight enough for 400 bucks. Like I had to think like, okay, tell my wife, I got a young kid, like, how am I going to balance this thing? Right. Um, and, and then I ended up, I ended up doing it, you know, kind of figuring it out and in the process of figuring it out and being more involved in this kind of community online that was into robotics and stuff that kind of sent me down that path of like, Hey, maybe it'd be more fun to reverse engineer this, but it was just like happenstance. Like I wasn't into LIDARs or anything. I just saw that challenge as like, I think, I think that's in my wheelhouse, embedded microcontroller, these other things where I'm comfortable. So I'm going to give it a go. Neato is an autonomous vacuum cleaner that uses sensors to map out your home. It uses light detection and ranging or LIDAR in particular. And my first experience with that was when I reverse engineered this uh, LIDAR that was on the Neato. There's a Neato robotic vacuum. And there was a LIDAR module on top of it. And it was right around the time that the Xbox, that motion controller for the Xbox got reverse engineered so that people could use it for things other than the Xbox. The robotics community put out like a bounty for, to reverse engineer this LIDAR module because the robot was $400. And normally those LIDAR modules were like eight to $10,000. So it was a low cost way for people to use LIDAR, which is light detection and ranging, like to map rooms. And so I ended up reverse engineering that and winning the challenge. And, and so there's some articles online about that. And, and I created a wiki just to post as I was reverse engineering this robot. And I used wiki spaces, which is some company that's out of business now or whatever. And like a hundred people joined this thing and everybody started putting in stuff about what they were doing in reverse engineering the robot. And, and then the company went out of business. Wikispace got bought out and then shut down in January of 2019. So Hash took it upon himself to continue. When I created this, I'm going to create my own. I'll host it myself. I'll build my own media wiki so that I'm not beholden to some other company that might go out of business and I'm using a free service. I'll just pay for it and I'll let other people post for free. I'll kind of build that thing up myself and see if people join. And that's what I've noticed now. More and more people are joining and sharing their projects and either working on smart meters or just sharing whatever they're reverse engineering. So it began as a challenge posted in Hackaday and curiosity to learn more about LiDAR. That's how Hash started down the road of reverse engineering. The site he created is called Richesum. The challenge is finding a .com that's available, which I think is all our challenges. Um, so what Richesum is, it's, it's a Latin word for moving in reverse. So reverse engineering, I looked for something that, you know, that was kind of unique and different. And so my idea with that as a channel name and it kind of, and it started also as a wiki, was a place that everybody that's working on reverse engineering stuff could have a spot to, to post things and to share it. I noticed it seems like it's very fragmented. Everybody's got their own little blog where they post stuff. And there isn't like a Wikipedia of reverse engineering, but it's super beneficial if you can see all that in one place or see what people are working on. It is true that embedded security has been underground. Yeah, there are tracks at conferences, but it hasn't yet exploded into the mainstream. So Hash has been collecting the knowledge that he's gained and shared it with others. Like I've always been interested in taking stuff apart and working on things and 
way back when I was younger, you know, I'd buy like uh, old cell phones from surplus places and try to take it apart and understand it. And I had an amateur radio license when I was really young as well. And so I was always kind of into, you know, wireless stuff. Yeah, it's always seems kind of magical, I guess, to people, you know, wireless transmission and everything else and how it works. And so I always wanted to know that pretty in depth and just how, how systems work. So here we are, the tinkerer. The word hack literally means to take things apart. But it's more than that. It has to include that innate curiosity about what makes things work. So I guess I've always been taking apart things and and trying to work on them and stuff. I just never really published anything. And I think when, when I did the robotic vacuum and it became kind of more public and I started, I created that wiki and started putting it out there, I kind of felt like it was giving back a bit to the community that I had kind of taken a lot from like when I was growing up, I'd be in IRC channels and I had found the internet and all this information that was available. And now it was like, how can I contribute back to, to that and put material out and help other people maybe join in the same way I did by not traditional means. Like it wasn't really college or anything that got me into electronics. It was all this discovery in the internet that, that brought me to it. And so I think a bit of the desire is to do Something like that, right? So one takeaway with Hash is that he truly is a hacker in the old school sense. He has a day job, and it's not this. He does this hacking on nights and weekends. My day job is like probably the complete opposite of this. So, And, and I generally don't talk about my day job or my day company or whatever. It, I don't kind of mix the two. And I'm in charge of uh, global sales operations, channel operations, and go-to-market strategy. So nothing to do with electronics whatsoever, other than we sell, you know, technology products, right? And cameras and things like that. Um, and so this is purely because I like to be kind of in the weeds on technology and things like that. And, and I don't get that. I can't satisfy that desire during the day, you know, in that job, it's a different kind of thing. Um, so I do it nights and nights and weekends and vacation days. I first became aware of Hash after the Texas freeze. In particular, Hash had published a video on YouTube showing him war driving around the streets of Dallas. In particular, he was reading the data off of the various smart meters, learning when they were last shut off. This is a map of Dallas, Texas, and each one of these red dots represents the location of a smart meter. I was able to receive this data while driving down the freeway with a software-defined radio and my laptop. The smart meters transmit their location information along with the amount of time that they've been running since they last experienced a power outage. Meters that are low to the ground, like this one, have only been running for a few days. Meters that are much higher like this one up here, have been running significantly longer. This one for 1,783 days. This video was picked up by major mainstream media, and it, it clearly shows that ERCOT didn't really know what information was available. It couldn't say where and when the specific outages occurred, but Hash could. So after, after the power outage happened here, I was reading some articles and there was this, and there was, so there was all these questions being asked of these power companies and providers like, Hey, where, where did you choose to turn off power? Why? Some areas didn't lose power at all. Some people lost power the whole time. 
I lost power like eight hours at a stretch. It was freezing cold inside my house. The whole pool was frozen. You're trying to just not like, you know, pipes are breaking. Like you're trying to not lose everything you have. And these companies are saying, well, we can't tell you where power went out because that's, it's actually like national security level information is what the article said. Like the power provider said, we can't tell you because it's essentially a matter of uh, national security, uh, something security with the grid. It was this Austin uh, article that they got some quote from somebody. And so I started looking and I had realized that in the broadcast data from the meters, the meter is it's broadcasting constantly more than once a minute in that broadcast that it sends out in plain text is it's uptime. The last time it experienced a power outage. So you could drive around essentially. And if there had been an outage, you could drive around and see all the meters that had a really short uptime, meaning they lost power. And the ones that have a really long uptime means they didn't experience that outage. So I went driving around down the freeway. I logged all that data. I loaded it into Google Earth and I plotted it to see, okay, who had an outage? Who didn't? There's some areas you see it's really low. The other ones you see are high. I went to some you know, more well-off areas and you see they're really high, like they never have a power outage. Um, and, and so I thought that was interesting that the power company people thought that like, they first of all, they thought that, that information isn't even available. They probably still think that. And second of all, they're saying it's some kind of matter of national security and anybody can just drive around and receive it. So uh, both of those things I thought were kind of funny. The Texas freeze really wasn't his first interest with smart meters, nor was it the start of our story. Our story actually begins a few years before with the famous Dallas Hacker Association. So I moved, I'm in Dallas now. I moved here like at the end of 2014. And I I was in California before that, but not like in Silicon Valley or anything. I was in the Central Valley, like in Fresno. And so not like a high tech area. Um, and so when I moved to Dallas, I'd been here a while and I thought, I wonder if there's any groups of people that get together that are in security or anything like that, like something that would be, I've always been kind of interested in hacking and stuff like that. And there was a group called the Dallas Hackers Association that met up. And so I ended up coming out and hanging out and they would just do these kind of fire talks and people would get up and talk about whatever. Um, and one guy at one of the things, he was talking about protests and there was this, maybe it was around, it was, there was some protests or something going on. I guess there's always things like that, but, and they mentioned that, you know, in times like that, they might jam communication or shut down cell phone communication or these other things to try to control protests. And so we kind of started just like musing, you know, over a beer of like, well, what other networks, how could you set something up? And there was the idea of Bluetooth things and stuff like that. And I thought, well, smart meters are communicating. Like, what if you could build little pagers that would communicate over the network that the same smart meters have essentially established. Like what if you could piggyback on that network somehow? Um, Because what's the odds that they would black out a whole city to stop communication. So it was just purely like a thought experiment. So I started looking into smart meters and saying like, I wonder, maybe I'll give a talk about just how they work at this little local kind of thing. And as I dug into it, I found things that were interesting. Like one of my videos, I talk about this geographic routing protocol how they send data. And and I thought, wow, you know, they're aware of where they are and they're aware of sending a message. Like you could probably use that to say, well, I'm here and I want to send a message to there and maybe the network will carry it across somehow. Um, And so I ended up giving a talk a few months later. I just dove into these things and tried to figure out what I could. And I gave this in-person talk. I never posted it online. I was kind of worried if I said anything online, just the forces of B were going to come shut me down um, for even looking at these things. Um, 
and everybody was kind of glued to their seats, you know, as I was talking about this and the data and, and whatever. And so at that point, I then, that was like a few years, few years ago, I gave that talk and then I never talked about it again. I didn't publish anything online. No one essentially knew I was doing any of this work and I was kind of just working on it in my room. Then you get to the point and then I, I decide, I think I'm going to start making some videos about this. And that's when we had this kind of great freeze event in Texas where they lost power and all this stuff. And I kind of thought, you know, I don't really know if these guys know what the hell they're doing. Like maybe I should just risk it and just start publishing this stuff to raise awareness and to just have other people join in and take a look and say, how, how well are these systems built? You know, how, how safe and secure are they? Um, yeah, just to take a look. And so it, it kind of started ramping up, I would say then about that point. So a lot of us came home one night and there was a shiny new smart meter on our house. And I, I remember asking questions, who were the manufacturers and were these things even vetted by a security community? Turns out they weren't. So it wasn't to analyze the security of smart meters. It was just like, I wonder how these things work. And, and could you craft a message that these meters would carry across? And I, I kind of equated it to like a freight hopping. Like if there's a train going down and a, you know, a hobo or something hops on this train, the train keeps going. The train isn't affected at all by this person hopping on. So you can essentially piggyback on this thing with no adverse effect to it. And, you know, and, and off you go. And so I thought, well, what if you could craft a message that would go a few hops, it would expire, you know, would the system ever even know that that message was carried across, you know, could you make use of this for some low speed kind of communication as this massively deployed network that they're only using for smart meters. Um, and so that, that was kind of one of the initial things that drove it. By the way, given all this hacking, how's Hash's relationship with ERCOT, his energy company? Yeah, well, they... They haven't called me. Um, I did reach out to the EFF and I spoke to some lawyers that they have um, just to kind of understand the landscape of what I was trying to do and how you can do it in a means that is, um, you know, that is kind of above the board because I, you know, I think the idea is that you want to, you, people need to be able to look at these things for everyone's benefit. Yeah. Because, you know, it's when when things are sold and they say it works this way, if you can't check it, like, you know, you're just trusting somebody else to saying it. And and that's a that's a bit of a challenge. And so what I didn't want to do is is make it that, oh, I'm just completely rogue and I dump the firmware and I, I post it out for everybody to see. And you do these things that you're not that legally, you know, as kind of a society, we say we don't want to do but we still need to look at these things. So how do you do it in a way where more and more people can do it? And I try to guide them as well to say, look, you know, don't post illegal things. Don't share something if you get it, but how can we all get a copy of it and look at it, which would be a legal way of doing it. You know, they haven't reached out to me and my power's still on. So I'm, I'm square in that respect. With something like this, I'm always curious about the barrier to entry to this research. It's not network security where you can download a spec or code and analyze it on your Linux box. No, this requires a little extra effort. Like if you see my lab, like behind there, it's like scopes and function generators and power supplies and, and all kinds of stuff. So for me, 
I'm the most comfortable like in the embedded zone, circuit boards and chips and everything. When it gets to the abstraction layer of some massive bit of code and how do you even navigate that and everything, like I'm trying to get better at that because obviously there's a lot on that side, right? Um, but yeah, I'm I'm just super comfortable. Like if we need to solder a hundred wires onto some tiny chip to solve the problem, I'll do that probably before I'll even look at the software route because I'm just so comfortable working in in that space. So that's why when I saw that thing, um, it drove me. And that's kind of the same with smart meters. A lot of embedded parts, some wireless aspects. I wanted to get better at software defined radio, and I'm kind of comfortable learning those, like spending the time to learn those things. And so that's where I felt like maybe attacking this not on the network side and the IP side and is the backhaul secure and all this stuff that people are traditionally looking at. That's the traditional ICS attack vector. Yeah. Like they come in over a network and then they take over the stuff. I was like, what if you could come in over the other side and take over things? Because people probably aren't looking at this other side because the barrier to entry is high. It's complicated stuff that people usually aren't looking at. It's easier to look at the network side, right? So you need to buy some additional equipment, some specialized equipment. So what does something like that set you back? How much does it cost to get into embedded systems these days? Okay. 5,000 plus. I mean, you can do it with some cheaper stuff like cheaper scopes and things, but I, I tend to like, you know, I, I enjoy it and it's hobby. So if I'm going to do it, I want to have fun. And so I'll, I'll spend some money when I have it to, to get some stuff. So, I mean, and then there's, you know, random stuff like a microscope over here and other things. Cause I wanted to start looking at Silicon and, and diving in kind of to the very, the most basic level. But when you start adding in all the software defined radios and everything, it adds up pretty quick. Um, so I would say it's, it's above maybe a, a weekend hobbyist of someone that just wants to look at something, but it's well below a, a state level or corporate actor. So it's, you know, it's, I would say it's accessible to someone who wants to do it. Um, but it's not, you're probably not just going to have the stuff sitting on your desk unless you're interested in electronics or whatever. And then there's the small matter of hardware itself. You need to physically obtain a smart meter. Because, you know, hardware hacking, you got to be able to get the hardware. Like, it's awful hard to hardware hack with no hardware. So um, I thought, like, and, and the thing is, depending on your motivations, anyone can get a smart meter. Like, if you go look at the side of a building or your house, they're not locked, right? There's a little security tag they put to see if someone is tampered with it, but they're not locked. You clip that thing with some wire cutters, you just pull it right off, and you have a smart meter. So, you know, we you have to remember, like... It's not like this hardware is not accessible. If you're a malicious actor, that hardware is everywhere and it's free and it's easy to get and no one's watching it and they're not going to know if you took it. Now, if you power it up, that's a different story. We could talk about that, but, but it's easy to get. But I wanted to talk about it publicly. Like in the end, I wanted to publish videos. So I have to watch everything I do, you know, if I'm sharing things, if I'm sharing the right things, all this stuff so that I can talk about it publicly, encourage other people to do it. And also to do it legally, you know, within the bounds that we can. And so I went to eBay because eBay is the place that uh, everything seems to be available. And I mean, you can search smart meter. There's every brand, every single one you want to buy is there. And they're like 25 bucks and, and, and sold by the lot, like a lot of them. Like it's not onesie twosies. I mean, there's people that says 40 available, 60 available, a lot of 240, all still new in the box that you can buy. I mean, they are completely out there. So the it's easy to get hardware for anybody that, that wants to get it. And it's super affordable to get it, like 25 to 50 bucks a piece. That's curious. I 
wonder for what reason would you need to buy 25 smart meters on your own if you're not a utility? Yeah, I mean, I, I have no idea. I've posed the question a few times in my videos, like I'm not sure what the reason is. Um, I, I would venture that it's it could be companies that buy surplus equipment. It could be electronic recycling companies where they don't have an agreement with them to destroy the stuff that they're picking up. They don't care what, what happens with it. And so they turn around and sell it on eBay. Um, it could be any number of reasons why it it's there. I, I you know, it could be an enterprising uh, employee that says, I'll haul that stuff off and throw it away. And they put it on eBay. You know, some of the stuff is like still in the factory boxes, like from the fact like Landis and gear box that's I have in the garage of like meters GE like it's you know it's like you know probably if you decoded the barcodes that are still in the box like you'd get some shipping information and whatever else from them right but uh but I'm I'm still not sure why they're all there but they're there and then there's other devices too like you'll see I have a video on a collector um which is one of the devices that's on a pole that's like the crown jewels because there's a lot of information in there um and somehow that ended up on eBay you know as Probably I, I speculate that that was maybe a package that the one that I got that could have been stuck in customs and then they just let it go and somebody from there got it and put it on eBay. You know, it's it's interesting that there is so much hardware available. Then there's the option of buying something off of eBay. As I said in a previous episode, you don't always get the software when you do that. It's proprietary with each device. So with smart meters, though, it's all embedded, right? There's nothing floating above that that's proprietary. For the software on the smart meters, um, so the smart meter network, you got to think of it in like kind of maybe three pieces. There's the meters themselves and there's the mesh network they're on and the software associated with that kind of operating. Then you go up, once you leave the mesh network, you go up to a device on a pole called a collector. That device is basically the bridge between the internet and the smart meters. And so it can either go over a private WAN, a cell modem or a wired connection or whatever, but it, now you're kind of on to the, the traditional like, you know, network. Then you go back to a head-in system that is inside of a utility that's actually aggregating all that data. It's used for the billing. It's how they send signals to turn power on and off to meters and these other things. So, so in that respect, like, yeah, the head-in system, they don't have those on eBay. Um, so I, I don't have one of those yet, but if they do, I'll get one. The next level, the collector, there's been a few different ones of those that have been on eBay for different manufacturers. And I've bought a few of them. Virtually all the stuff I bought before I ever made the first YouTube video, because I was, I thought if my source gets dried up, I won't have what I need to continue talking about these. So I kind of just essentially stockpiled everything before I ever made the first video that I did have a little foresight on. Um, and so those, they have that kind of bridge software running in them. Um, and so it depends probably on the manufacturer, how much intelligence they put in the collector and how much they leave at the head end. And that's probably a security design of what they're, what they might put out there in encryption keys and things like that. And then you have the, the smart meters. And so the, the software on the smart meters, that's just hundred percent on there. It's firmware. If you can glitch it and get it off, you got a full copy of what it's running. The collector, because I got one, it had an SSD drive in it. Um, and so you just pop that into a computer, turns out it's running Windows um, and everything's written in .NET. And so it's fairly easy to take a look at that code. Um, so that proved to be fairly interesting. And there must be only a handful of companies that make these smart meters. Um, I think there's there's definitely a 
different ranges. I haven't analyzed a ton of them. And, and so it's unfortunate probably for Landis and gear that they happen to be the brand that's on the side of my house, which is just where I happen to go look to say, what should I buy? And so I went outside and I said, well, what's going to be near me? I need to receive the RF data from something near me. And so I need to use a system that's around me. So I look and there it was. And same for Encore, the energy company. Like it's unfortunate for them that they just happen to be my energy provider or fortunate, I guess, depending on how you want to look at it, you know? Um, but so I've looked at those and then I've seen other ones that have been advertised that are, you know, the people tell me about that are available in other areas. And so I think there, there are some where it's very simplistic to get the data. There's a guy, uh, I can't remember his name. He created this software called RTL AMR for automatic meter reader. Um, and there's some meters that they just broadcast out the power usage, completely plain text, super simple. Um, and you can decode it using an RTL SDR, the $30 SDR, right? Mm -hmm. And and so people would go to his site, RTL AMR, and they would say, hey, can you support this meter? And I think he's kind of maybe over that project or adding support. And so he would say, no, we're not going to add that or no, the protocol isn't understood. And so when I was initially searching for this meter, I saw Lana Segear, the focus, whatever it was, it was like a, a request on his GitHub to add support for it. And he said, I'm not going to add support. It's the, you know, it's more, a more complex protocol or whatever. And so that was kind of my first look. And I said, okay, I guess I'm going to have to figure this out myself because nobody else has done it so far. Cause it's not, there's nothing published about usually those mesh side protocols, you know, just because it's proprietary to every company. A mesh network is a network of individual nodes fully distributed. They self-organize and self-configure. So if a new node is introduced, it gets integrated quickly. This is how smart meters talk with one another. They bounce messages off each other. And given this dynamic nature, testing smart meters, therefore, can be problematic. I mean, you have to have a lab. I mean, you have a lab and you have the hardware, but the moment you turn on that smart meter, you may have a problem. You might black out your own home. You might black out your neighborhood. So, there's something else you need to do before you turn on one of those 25 smart meters that you purchased. Right. You have to create a special environment, an isolated network. To do the analysis, when you turn it on, so if you just power it up, it's going to try to contact the network and reach out. And so, you know, that would be a problem if you're experimenting with it and you're interfering with a network around you. And so the first step that I want to do was to not do that. And then to also make sure that when I'm creating videos and showing the stuff that, that it's done in a way that kind of shows other people a, a way to go about it. And so I used a thing called a Faraday cage. A Faraday cage is commonly used in security research. It's used to shield RF signals coming in, going out. Often, it's a physical mesh of conductive materials, and it could be as simple as a bag or a pouch or a full room. The point is, is that the signals from the outside really can't get in, and the signals on the inside, they really can't get out. They're trapped within the physical mesh. The science behind it is cool. Basically, the conductive material causes the electrical charges to be distributed so that they cancel each other out. And this principle is useful, say, in deflecting lightning strikes. The Faraday cage basically contains in all the RF energy. And so I feed an antenna into there for my software-defined radio, and it allows me to listen to the meter that's in there. I also took it one step further 
and I took apart the RF circuitry that the smart meter uses on that mesh side, and I disabled the power amplifier that it uses to amplify the signal it transmits. So there's like a an RF chip that transmits out some energy, and then there's an amplifier on it that really boosts it to the kind of full one watt. And so I just disabled that amplifier. So then I'm inside of a Faraday cage. I've kind of made it as quiet as I can so that it's not going to interfere with anything. And then I start listening to it individually to try to figure out what is it doing? What's it trying to find? How's it, how's it booting up all those things? It's an interesting question. If all of these smart devices are interconnected, someone could manage to insert a message into the network. Someone could shut down the network, at least in theory. So behind the glass, on the circuit board, are smart meters really smart? Or are they actually kind of dumb? I would say they have two different processors on them. The latest ones have like a two megabyte of flash uh, memory. Like, I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're doing a lot of stuff. Like it's, it's not a simple, it's not a, so there are some smart meters that are very simple. They just ping out. Here's the power usage. A truck drives around and just receives it. But these things, I mean, they do build, they like build a self-healing mesh network of all these meters where they're broadcasting the information, the ones around them are hearing it. They're constantly sending out like, uh, you know, kind of uh, packets that are announcing their state, their time, how they're running all this stuff so that they can, you know, send this data back. So, so they are like, I would say they, these ones I'm looking at, they're, they're very complicated. Like they're, they're not simple devices um, to analyze the circuit board and to try to create schematics and all these things I did. It just comes down to, you know, methodically looking at things one at a time. So like I took, I, you, you always need multiple pieces of hardware to, to reverse engineer something. So I got one meter and I just stripped all the components off the board. So I just like soldering iron and heat gun and just took everything off clean slate circuit board. And then use a continuity tester with a, a meter to just literally probe out pins. Where does this pin on the processor go? All one to a hundred go to the next one, where does it go? And then start drawing that in some schematic capture software and create a schematic of the board that then I can look at and say, okay, what, what are the interesting pieces? What are maybe some interesting lines? Is there a way to put it into a, a test mode? Does it have serial port access into something special like I found on some of them? So, but it just, you have to kind of attack it, you know, at the most basic level and, and just build up from there. So, it seems complicated, I think, when you look at it from the big picture, but it doesn't feel complicated when I'm doing it. It's tedious and time-consuming, but it doesn't feel complicated, you know? So Hash started creating some videos on YouTube a few years ago, and the bulk of these are on his smart meter research. The way they play out is it seemed like they were in real time. They were a real-time progress report. There's a genuine sense of discovery here and curiosity that runs throughout the series. There's a, a very faint kind of maybe vision um, of where to go, but it's essentially a real-time, you can think of it as like a real-time choose-your-adventure kind of story. Like I have kind of an idea of what my next video will be that I'm going to do right now. But beyond that, uh, a bit of it is the discovery and what happens and comments people leave and questions that are raised and you know things that are discovered along the way that says, hey, what would be interesting? Like right now I'm working on glitching the processor to dump 
the, the flash memory. For a long time, I was working purely on analyzing the wireless network. And so I thought, okay, we can probably learn more about the wireless mesh network if I can get the firmware and understand how is it frequency hopping? What are choices that are being made? Um, because I've kind of felt like I've gone as far as I can with just a black box analysis of the how it's working. So I need some more information and how can I get that? And so people would ask me, they'd say, you know, do you know about glitching or do you know how to glitch a processor to dump stuff? And I've always been interested in it, but I hadn't actually done it. So I thought, okay, well, let me see if I can figure it out and I'll start making videos. And I usually like to make the videos even before I know I can figure it out because then it, it also kind of drives you to spend the time to figure it out. Cause you've kind of put your name out there. Like I'm going to do this thing. And so, yeah. So for the most part, it's like, I might not even know in a video if I can do the thing that I said I'm going to do in the next video. It's like a matter of trying to figure it out. So that's why sometimes the videos aren't exactly every week or something, right? It's like, because hell, I got to try to figure out whatever the heck it is I said I was about going to do in the next video. One of the videos is devoted to something called glitching. You might hear this in the gaming community and in robotics. I really wasn't sure what it means. Yeah, I mean, so when you so there's a, a few different ways to glitch things i don't know everything about all of them um and so i'll kind of just tell you what i've done so far right so they generally you can glitch the power to something which means you you kind of momentarily drop the power the power rail of a microcontroller or you can glitch the clock which means that if the clock is running say at 10 megahertz or something you kind of like you might still keep it at 10 megahertz but you might you know, it, those are usually spaced, that waveform spaced out like 50%. So it's high 50% of the time, low 50% of the time. And you might make like an extra little clock pulse in there, which basically the processor isn't expecting to receive a change of state that quick. And what that can do is, you know, the processor, when it's running the chip, it's like a state machine. So so everything's happening and, and it's all based on this change of state of the clock line. And if the clock line changes state, faster than it's expecting, like a program counter might increment, but the rest of the stuff down chain from the program counter might not actually have enough time to process what you're saying. So in the case of glitching a clock, you're saying, I'm going to try to maybe cause something to happen with the program counter or some other piece where the downstream parts of like maybe setting some bits for security or, or checking some bits don't actually get a chance to process. And it just steps to the next line of code, which might say like, if you know the variable gets set to zero, I run my check. If the security is set, I set it to one, and then I evaluate, is it one? Well, if you're able to glitch past the go, check what it is, and you set it initially to zero, then when you do your check, you end up checking, you go, oh, it's zero, that means there's no security, and you somehow have caused it to jump past that. With power glitching, which is what I started doing, you're doing the same thing, but you're trying to basically drop the voltage line of the processor down incredibly fast and raise it back up incredibly fast so you don't cause the chip to reboot you don't cause some brownout detector which is what usually when voltage dips to go off and reboot the chip but when that drops things like writing to uh sram or writing to other memory locations or updating variables might not take place or it might get corrupted or some program counter might get messed up so essentially you as the chip's trying to execute its instruction, you're trying to like glitch it to the point where there's actually not enough power to execute that next instruction. So it goes to do something, but it can't actually complete it. But then it keeps stepping on. So it's like the program counter kind of keeps incrementing, but what it told the chip to do 
there wasn't physically enough power. Like if you were just too tired to get up out of your chair, like your brain saying we should get up and go get food and your body saying, I'm not going anywhere. It's kind of that, that same thing. So it can be, it's not an exact science. So you do kind of have to say, okay, I'm going to glitch. I'm going to, I'm going to profile the circuitry. I'm going to profile the board, all these different things. And then, and then set your timing. So, so there's a bit of that you have to figure out, but once you do figure it out, you can pretty consistently, like I can consistently make my development board dump all of its flash memory. I can consistently corrupt a, a certain variable. So as you, as you figure out more about it, you can consistently, you know, do things without it taking a super long time to achieve the result. There's also this concept known as side channel. It's pretty cool. Just by looking at the rise and falls of energy usage, you can see when a chip is actively computing and when it's not. And given the strength of each rise and fall, you can also estimate the results. So this is sometimes used to figure out passwords and credit card details as they're going through any point of sale. It's pretty cool stuff. I've played with that a bit with some test boards. The guy, uh, Colin O'Flynn, that makes this chip whisper which is one of the devices I've been using. They have a, an incredible like set of kind of training uh, Jupyter notebooks that they've built and and boards that they send with stuff. And so in that sense, I've played with um, their power analysis. So these side channel kind of attacks or side channel analysis. Um, what's interesting is when a chip is processing, you can see a lot of times what is happening by looking at the power line of the chip. So if you look at the power line incredibly closely, you'll see it kind of dip up and down as it's doing things. Like if you haven't multiply something, you can literally see the, you know, kind of the fact that it was executing these different instructions. And so when you start to say maybe an encryption routine that's running or something else, you can kind of see that. The, the classic query is to say, I'm going to, I'm connected over a serial port. I'm going to try a password. And so depending on how it checks the password and the code it's running, Maybe it checks each letter you're sending to see if that letter matches or not. Maybe it takes the whole thing and checks to see if it matches. And so depending on that, if you can see the power line, you can see how far did the processor go in its code before it rejected me. So if I send the letter A and it rejects me in one millisecond, but I send the letter B and it rejects me in two milliseconds, and then I send C and it rejects me in one millisecond again, I can say, well, there's something interesting about the letter B. So now maybe I try BA, BB, BC, and you take something that was maybe a long password that would have been incredibly hard to figure out, and you can figure it out in a minute or two, right? And so, and that's something that usually the developers weren't thinking about because they weren't thinking someone could see their code or could see how the if statements or anything else were working. So they're not trying to protect against that. And so it's very easy to end up with code that if you can see that stuff is incredibly insecure, but people are assuming you can't see that and you don't have access to the code. So I don't have to worry about how the check routine was written. So, so there's, a, there's a lot of those things that are uncovering like issues with embedded systems. And even if you don't have the firmware, if you had the firmware, it'd be easy. You'd be like, this routine is completely broken. Here's how I get past it. But even without having that, there's, there's ways to figure it out. Not everything is proprietary in his research. There's a fair amount of free tools to be had. Yeah. So when I first started looking at these, I was using a device by uh, Michael Osman, you know, Great Scott Gadgets, um, and it's called the Yardstick One. And it basically, it's a device that uses the same RF chip 
that the smart meters use. So you can set it to a channel. So I can say there's like 240 channels that these things operate on between 902 to 928 megahertz. And they're spaced out every 100 kilohertz. And they kind of they kind of come in from the edges a little bit. So 240 or so channels. So you can set this thing to one channel, hook it into USB in your computer, and it'll receive the data. Um, and I wanted to do it with software-defined radios and, and pull everything in like from a wider spectrum, but I couldn't make that work. Like it was incredibly complex to try to do that. And I didn't know enough about digital signal processing and all these other things to do it. But with this little device, you could just tell it, go to this frequency, uh, use these parameters, and it'll start spitting out data. But you're only hearing one tiny slice of all of this stuff. So I would just hear anytime a meter happened to hop to like 904.6 megahertz, I'd hear whatever it sent. And that was kind of enough to get a feel for what's happening on this network because they're transmitting so much and they spread pretty much equally across all the frequencies that I could hear some stuff. Um, but obviously that doesn't give you a full picture because if you're trying to understand what these meters are communicating back and forth, you kind of need to hear the full, you know, the full bandwidth all the time. Um, and so, and the frequency hopping pieces, you know, the meters are hopping all the time. So every 700 milliseconds, they hop to a new frequency and they're all synchronized around each other. I'm not quite sure how, but what I've, what I've read is that it's their hopping sequence is based partially on their meter ID and partially on the CRC, which is essentially like their network ID that they combine that. And that comes up with the hopping pattern. So when, you know, uh, when say the energy company next to me wants to put a new meter on the network, they set that CRC for their network. It means that the other energy company that's right across the street from me selling power to those people using the exact same meters, those two networks don't interfere with each other. They kind of hop in a different pattern. They, they ignore the messages that aren't for their CRC, um, which is also how I found that there's ways to do testing without even putting things in a Faraday cage because you can set it to a test CRC and these other things, and then they won't interfere with the network. But you kind of fast forward a bit, and I was trying to figure out a way to receive all of this data at the same time. And I'm, I'm searching the internet, I'm watching every YouTube video I can of how do people deal with frequency hopping stuff. And, and I was building things and I spent a boatload of money to build this computer that's behind me with a crazy graphics card to try to do parallel processing and literally receive all 240 channels simultaneously and run it through some GPU accelerated channelizer thing. I mean, it's a talk that I gave at a GNU radio conference not that long ago. Um, and in the end, I still wasn't as successful. Like it was, it just, and I was, so I go, it was near Christmas time. I go in the living room, I'm kind of feeling defeated. I'm back to searching for YouTube videos to try to get ideas and I come across um, Jacob, what's his last Jacob Gilbert giving a talk at a GNU radio conference about this frequency hopping spread, spread spectrum toolkit that he had managed to have Sandia labs open source and put out there. And I'm watching this video and it's like showing how they're able to tag any packets. I'm just like getting goosebumps being like, oh my God, this is the thing. So I run in, I try to build all these different modules and get the new radio set up. Um, and I managed to get it and it starts dumping packets that it's receiving. So no matter where it is in that range, it grabs the packet, it, it dumps it to the screen. And I was like, holy cow, like, you know, this is like the holy grail right here. It didn't need that massive computer. I could run it on a laptop so I could drive around if I wanted. Um, and that's what then led me to start creating my own smart meters block 
that goes into new radio that decodes this landis and landis and gear uh, protocol specifically right When you do get around to watching Hash's video, you're going to see a stylized sticker from time to time within the frame. It's from an organization called Hacking is Not a Crime. And this simple statement, well, it really sums up Hash's position. Initially, it was a cool sticker that I got at, uh, at, at the, the Dallas Hackers thing. And I thought, that's cool. And, and I had it sitting there and my kids were looking at it. They're like, Dad, hacking is a crime. And I was like, it's actually not like, holy cow, you know, like, let's talk about it because it has been so stigmatized that even all the videos I post comments constantly on TikTok, all these other places, like you're not allowed to take those apart. You can't touch that. Uh, it's a federal crime. You're going to go to jail, you know, all this stuff. And I was like, look, I, I bought it on eBay. It's mine. I took it apart. Like there's nothing illegal about taking things apart and, and trying to understand how they work. That became, I guess, more of a focus to tell people and to kind of try to help them understand that, like, taking something apart isn't a crime and trying to understand it's not a crime. And so and so then I ended up uh, they asked me, like, hey, would you like to also be, you know, kind of an advocate for hacking is not a crime because I think the stickers and everything were getting attention. Um, and so that that's how I kind of came to that. And, you know, and if you've been around a while, you know that, like, electronics used to be very accessible. A lot of stuff shipped with a schematic. It came with the source code. Like at some point, companies decided it's better that we just keep all this encased in and turn all these things into additional revenue streams and everything else. And the idea of anyone looking at anything just like vaporized. Like it's people work on soft, like they want to write apps, you know, like they're 18 levels removed from designing their own product, right? Like they're using someone else's platform, they're using someone else's everything. And that's what I like about embedded in hardware. It's like, you're right at the base level. That's why I have a microscope and I've started looking at the silicon and everything else. It's like, you want to be down at the, the ground level, you know? And, uh, and so, yeah, that, that was, uh, that was like a big motivator for me, I guess. So along with the idea of hacking is not a crime, there's also this right of repair. In episode 14, I talked about the idea that you should be able to look at the electronic devices in your life without voiding the warranty, without getting in trouble with the manufacturer. I wonder if any of that comes into play when looking at smart meters. I don't, I don't know if there is anything there. I focused on essentially like some some basic things like not distributing, like I've already dumped the firmware in a different version of this meter. Um, but I haven't, you know, I haven't shared it with anybody. I've just done my own analysis and some reverse engineering tools like binary ninja and things like that. Um, and, and so I've just focused on essentially what are the most basic things? Like we can't distribute software we don't own, but if I do own the hardware and I get a copy of the software, I can take a look at that. I just can't publish it. Um, so, but I'm not sure that right to repair or anything like that I mean, right to repair would be interesting if somebody published a schematic, I guess, of these things. That would be helpful. But, you know, companies tend to fight that tooth and nail. Like those guys are, uh, what's his name? The one guy that's the most vocal on YouTube, uh, something Rossman, I want to say. He's very vocal on the right to repair as it relates to Apple equipment, you know, Apple kind of hardware and stuff. Um, and so, yeah, it's uh, they, they, they kind of fight 
anybody looking at this stuff. Yeah, I guess they, they just don't want it. You know, I don't think they see a benefit in it. I'm not sure. And given that Hash has been looking at smart meters for a while now, has he reported any of these vulnerabilities? And what has that experience been like? So I haven't I haven't reported any vulnerabilities because I haven't I haven't found anything, I guess, yet that I consider like, you know, like if I can create a packet and shut off power or uh you know, change firmware or something over a wireless connection. And I find a vulnerability there, which as, as I work on it more and more, you get closer to stuff like that. Like if you're able to dump the firmware and analyze it uh, and things like that. Um, some of the stuff where it's all plain text and everything else that's being broadcasted out there, I look at it more as like raising awareness to the public because the people that design this system obviously know that they're broadcasting stuff in in the clear. So I, you know, I don't feel a need to disclose to companies like here's how your product is working. It's like they should know how their product's working. The public doesn't know how their product's working, right? Like, and so I kind of like I probably have less of a responsible disclosure stance the more I work on these things. I don't like the idea of going to the company and asking for permission to publish information that is that people should know about. Um, now if it's something that can be used in a malicious way, I think you have to look at how much you disclose, but I'm very for disclosing something. The moment I find it, like I can send a packet and shut off power in Dallas, like that would be useful information to show. Now, you know, you, you wouldn't say here's the packet and here's the software, but if there's these vulnerabilities, I think they get addressed because of public attention. Mm -hmm. If you allow it to be quiet and in the background, it, you they'll just drag it on for however long because these are systems that are hard to update right like rolling out firmware updates to hundreds of thousands of meters across the city and and doing all the testing to make sure things don't break like there has to be a motivation to want to do that and and public outcry is usually a pretty solid motivator you know and there's a spirit of educating others which i fully support well i would say i'm trying to get more people involved so a lot of the videos and the stuff I do are to try to make it more accessible, to try to make it interesting um, because, you know, smart meters, like they aren't, you know, they aren't sexy, you know, they're not, it's not a Bitcoin wallet where maybe you find a million dollars or something. Um, but I think it is important. I think it is interesting. And I think you do learn a lot that can be applied to other things that are interesting. And at the same time, you're, you're kind of making sure that systems are secure and, and it's a fun thing to analyze. So I've been doing more to try to involve people and to come up with lower cost ways. Like I'm trying to come up with a way now that anyone could dump the firmware out of a meter for like 10 bucks. So like buy the meter for 25, buy a Raspberry Pi Pico, load some code on it, and it will almost like a mod chip on an Xbox or something. It will dump out the code so that you can analyze it in Ghidra, which is free. So to try to get more eyes on it, but in a legal way, like if they buy the meter, if they buy this thing, if they put it on and get a copy and don't share it with anybody, they can be looking at it too. Um, and, and I have like, you know, a discord channel where people are in there. And so a lot of people that are discussing it and looking at it and, and find it interesting. So I think that piece, uh, you know, is fun to try to get more people involved just in reverse engineering in general. And, and in these kinds of things, you know, and, and also it's more eyes for me. Like I can only figure out so much myself, you know, and there's a lot of people that know a lot more about network protocols or mesh protocols or all these things. Um, and so I try to do what I can to, 
to make it accessible and make myself available. So this has been a process over a series of years. Remember, this is not Hash's day job. It's his passion project. I kind of, I kind of flip flop around based on interest and, and keeping myself interested in it. So a lot of times people say like, well, how can you work on just this one thing or for so long? And it's, there's so many, that's, what's interesting that there's so many different angles you can come at it. And the desire is kind of always learning. So I wanted to learn about software defined radio, but it's much easier if you have a project, that's the way I learn. So it's like, okay, well, how can I do this crazy thing? So it took me like a year to figure out how to do the frequency hopping stuff. And then, okay, I want to learn more about, uh, you know, writing C++ code. Okay. I'll create a block in the software defined radio thing. You know, I want to learn more about, uh, you know, how to, how to glitch. Okay. Well, I'll try to glitch this processor. So it's, it's been one kind of focus of attention, but it's been coming at it from every kind of technological aspect you can. And I would say the, probably the final piece is these devices, just like anything, you know, the longer they live in the field, the more vulnerable they become to attacks over time. Anyone in a security community understands that. Like if it's, if it's only, if it's useful life is only six months, it has a different profile, you know, uh, than if it's going to be out there for a year or two years or five years. Well, smart meters are 15 plus years that they live in the field. So 15 years is a long time for technology to withstand attack because the attack space evolves over time as well. And so the cost of attack drops every year. And that's why someone like myself, 10 years ago, when they were looking at these things, probably couldn't have afforded the software-defined radios and all the stuff needed to attack it because those were many thousands of dollars. Now the same software-defined radios are hundreds of dollars, right? And so all of a sudden, the, you know, the attack is much easier. The processors that are used in these things, they're kind of frozen in time too. So glitching attacks and stuff that don't work as easily on the latest embedded processors in smartphones do work super easy on the stuff that's in smart meters, right? So I think that there is a piece that because these aren't, because there are no Bitcoins waiting inside of smart meters, they assume no one's going to attack them. But as we see in the world, there's a lot of motivations for attacking things. And so these are, I view, low-hanging fruit in, the, in that sense. And so I do feel like the more people I can rally along with myself to help attack these, the more awareness it raises that maybe 15 years is too long to have them last in the field. Maybe they should only have a five-year life. And then they got to build a cost model for the power companies around replacement every five years, right? It, it could just be something like that. But but without people attacking them, you just leave this super easy attack vector for other people to come in and you know ransomware that starts on meters or, or something else kind of crazy like that. I'd like to thank Hash for coming on the show and talking about his journey in reverse engineering. As I said, this is not yet mainstream. So if you're looking for bleeding edge research, such as the work that Hash is doing, Check out the embedded security and hardware hacking tracks at any major convention. And definitely check out the Rechesum wiki page, along with the Rechesum channel on YouTube. Finally, if you want to know more about Hacking is Not a Crime, check out their website. And you're in luck. The next episode of The Hacker Mind is all about Hacking is Not a Crime. I hope to see you then. Hey, if you enjoy this podcast, tell a friend. I bet there are others who like commercial-free narrative information security podcasts. I have so many stories about hackers who are making a positive difference in the world. 
I don't want you to miss out. Let's keep this conversation going. DM me at Robert Vimosi on Twitter or join me on Discord. You can find the deets at hackermine.com. The Hacker Mind is brought to you every two weeks, commercial-free, by For All Secure. For The Hacker Mind, I remain just another node on the Mesh Network, Robert Gamosi. Robert Gamosi.